Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is the show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. On today's show, we've got Giles Alexander. He's joining us from Zenzone, and we're going to be talking all about mental health awareness and their platform, which is providing mental health services for children and young people. But before that, hello, Jack. Hello, David. How are we today? Uh, yeah, I was. <laughs> I fell asleep on the sofa at about half nine last night after after Big Data World. I was pretty tired. How about you? Um, I think I was about half hour behind you, to be honest, mate. Um... I just, uh, I mean, yeah, it was an amazing day. It's knackering, but uh, I just pulled up the uh, the health data on my phone, and apparently, I did uh, nearly eight k's worth of walking around there yesterday. Wow! Yeah, not bad. I mean, like, I, I do think a lot of that would be going to and from the smoking area, which was uh, quite <laughs> far away from where the hall was. But hey, steps nonetheless. Does your health data take that into account? The fact that you smoke. No, why would I tell it that? I want my iPhone to think I'm of the rudest health at all times. Which actually reminds me of um, almost like what uh, Chris was talking about on the stage yesterday. Uh, sorry to digress, but um, a chap from DMA, or a chap from the CEO from DMA, was saying how like you should you should be honest with Fitbit. You should give this data because you're the one that's going to benefit from it. There's definitely something ironic about the fact that we went to a show talking all about data and trying to get nice clean, uh, usable data, and you're just willingly misguiding your phone. Uh-huh. No fear. <laughs> you learn a lot, then, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could say I learned a lot. Uh, no, I did. I very much did learn a lot yesterday, actually, Dave. It was, uh, it was a fantastic day. Good, good. And look, if you're wondering what else we found out about uh, whilst we were at Big Data World, uh, instead of an article, after our advert break in the, the latter part of this podcast, we recorded um, a quick chat, a wrap up over our first pint of Amstel. I mean, I say first, yeah. we only had two, but uh, <laughs> over a beer at the end of the day, just with some thoughts, some candid thoughts on the back of the conference. So that is a reason to stay tuned. Definitely. Um, but before that, as I said, we've got Giles Alexander. One thing I, I found quite interesting, actually, linking the two things together. Um, in, in this, Giles talks a little bit about bias and mental wellness models being built on natural language processes. There was a yep. lot of chat yesterday around bias, obviously, across the, the 13 talks on the, on the big data world stage. So it's quite timely that we've got this where we're, we're talking about services that are directly helping customers uh, but also, obviously, with, with, with healthcare generally, we tend to think about how data can be used to improve those services. So there's, there's, a nice, there's a nice link there between the two. Just as I thought we were getting experts in tenuous links, you come up with an amazing, natural, brilliant link that isn't even tenuous. It's not just tenuous. As we're starting to, just as we're finding our sweet spot in, uh, yeah, in tenuous links. No, that's, yeah, you're bang on, though. You're bang on. We can't really, uh, you know, ignore the fact that there is just a really nice link between the two here. <laughs> Sometimes happenstance and serendipity just plays right into our hands, doesn't it? Absolutely. So look, here's Giles, uh, as I said, from Zenzone. Uh, please listen, enjoy, and we'll talk to you afterwards. So today we're chatting with Giles. You're the CTO here at uh, Zenzone. Yes, that's right. Uh, you've been here for seven months? Yes, I joined uh, towards the end of last year. So I suppose wrapping up, 
why you decide to d- decided to join this business and what the business is would be kind of a logical place to start, right? Sure. Zenzone provide mental health care to children and young people primarily across mm-hmm. England. We also do support some adults, and but primarily we're here as a, to run a web platform to let children and young people get access to mental health care to work through any emotional, mental, social difficulties they might be facing. It's somewhere they can go to... Uh, read articles, to participate in discussion forums with other children and young people, or to talk directly to counsellors using chat. And it would appear in the last, even just the last six months, there is more chat about normalising and de-stigmatising mental health. But you're a business that have been around for 18 years, so I suppose that's all kind of, it's probably welcome that the, 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 welcome, the, the conversation yeah. <laughs> is changing, but you've been, you've been fighting this corner for quite a while. Yeah, it, it certainly is very welcome to hear, <laughs> to hear other people agreeing with us and to have some degree of vindication or validation <laughs> for what we've been saying for all these years. So it's, it's an interesting question we get asked a lot. Is, there, is it that people are talking about it more or is there a rise in the need? And we believe there's a rise in the need. Prevalence is increasing. You can you can probably look at a number of different reasons behind that. Yeah. Austerity does spring to mind, unfortunately. Um, but we definitely are seeing a greater demand, not just people wanting to talk about it more. And we think mm-hmm. that the, the desire to talk about it, which we do welcome, not just you know, for, for commercial reasons, but we think it is really great for society and great for people that people are talking about it, is, in, is driven partly by this increased need. Just... This might be anecdotal rather than anything that's, that's stats-based. So from your own kind of personal thoughts, if there is a greater need, is it across the board? I mean, we, we keep hearing about uh, young male suicide a lot as something that kind of is, is or certainly is in the press more, but is it something that you're just seeing kind of male, female, many different ages? Well, one of the unfortunate things we see is certain groups of people are more, more willing to access the help they need. Right. And men are not one of those groups. So... The risk, the rise in male suicide is probably linked to the general rise in mental and emotional distress. The unfortunate thing is men don't seek help. I, we've had a few different people on the podcast recently. Um, if I think about Cancer Central UK, they were talking about the fact that they were building a chatbot because they, they had seen research that people were more willing when they were in vulnerable situations to talk to a chatbot than necessarily a human. Why would someone not access the help that they need? And how does that, I suppose, then guide your, your ability to design and build the technology on the platform that you're making available? It's a really interesting question. Why don't people seek help for the care that they need? We've been offering our service for a long time so we can see what helps and what doesn't. And we know that, for example, the fact that we offer text um, counselling is very, very helpful to children and young people. A lot of the challenges they're facing are can be quite uh, they're quite traumatic, can be quite shame based. Um, they're typically talking to an adult, and adults are authority figures. No matter you know, who the young person is, an adult is always going to be perceived to some degree as an authority figure, and that reinforces the sense of shame or the, the difficulty to talk about what's going on. And this is true across the across the board across demographies. Because while people are talking about mental health care and the need for mental well-being more, we've still got a long way to go. There's still an enormous amount of stigma attached to this. And um, that, that the fact that we are talking about it is really only beginning. We've got a, we've got, we've got a long way to go uh, before people are more, much more willing to engage with this. So we have to think about this very carefully when we're designing our service. So 
So for example, we still offer text-based chat as the primary means for children and young people to access counselling services. We do offer video and audio to adults, but we don't offer it to um, children and young people. And that's because of this inhibitation that they're feeling. So we want to disinhibit them, we want them to open up. But we're also thinking more generally about how do we get people to access care. And I like to say when I'm chatting with people about what we do, that the place that mental health care is at is almost as if physical health care had a Panadol or surgery as the only options available. There is meditation, which is great and can be really helpful. And we, we do um, recommend it and we talk to a lot of companies. We have a lot of respect for the companies that offer this as a service. And then there's talking therapy, you know, there's sitting in a room one-on-one -on -one with someone and talking about what's going on in your mind. There's not a lot between those two things. We, and we're working quite a lot on expanding that. And it's not just driven by, well, let's build more products. It's, we think there's a, something really interesting there. So to come back, it's about offering services to people who really struggle to access it. So coming back to men, to access mental health care is mostly talking at the moment. And if young men are socialised from a very early age to not talk about how they feel, and in fact, to suppress their feelings that aren't sort of powerful masculine emotions around anger and strength, if they're taught to suppress all the other emotions about how they feel and how they can be vulnerable, then by the time they need to access a service like ours, they just simply don't have the language for it. Mm -hmm. So coming onto a website, which is very text-heavy, like all websites are, that are full of people talking about how they feel, and you're having to sit with someone and talk about how you feel, it's not that, even as setting aside the stigma and the shame, um, and even setting aside the, the need to understand that this is what you have to work on, you simply don't have the language. It's simply never been taught. You, don't, you haven't practised this idea of here is how you talk about your emotions, here is how you feel things. So where we want to go with products is to think on those problems and think on the problems that people are facing to say, well, if this is where you sit and you have a job to do just to feel better, how do we find another route for you to that job that doesn't force you to be someone you're not, doesn't force you to go through the socialization that um, women are typically forced through about feelings and emotions that men are not put through that are taught to be strong and masculine how do you change that so that you have a different set of requirements on the people who need the service how do you reach those people because what a quarter, a quarter of a million children young people have used the service you've got Couth or Couth is it Couth? Couth Couth, Couth. Um, that half of 11 to 19 year olds could access mm -hmm. but I suppose there are digital channels that might be great ways of reaching given given the demographics given the age range you'd kind yeah. of think of some of those social channels that might allow you to position it and reach them in a way that they're not necessarily going to wander into mm. a GP or a, or a you know a, a, I don't know a primary care trust in some part of an inner city yes well what you, what you can see is with the numbers we have we're not limited at, um, by finding people who need the service, finding people who want to use it. That's not a limiting factor. Mm. Our limiting factors are changing the demographics of the people who use it. We're going to change the demographics of the people who use our service so that more of the people who we are there to help feel they want to access it and feel they want the help. 
we um, want more and more of the NHS to purchase our service. We'd love to be universal. We are bought by the NHS um, as a product mm. at the local level. We would, we would love it to be bought nationally, obviously. Um, it'd be much easier for us because one of the things we have to do is we have to think very carefully about which regions, which parts of England have purchased Cooth so that we can market there. And we happily use the digital channels to reach the people. We go to where the, where the young people are to tell them there is something available for them. But it's then, how do you do that when the people you're trying to reach don't necessarily know that they're, what they're facing is a mental or emotional difficulty? Mm. This, um, this idea that you've, uh, you mentioned me earlier, David, this idea that it's a break. It's just like a break, but it's a break you can't see. And that's, that's the analogy I've always been yeah. kind of given by people, yeah. And I, I do like it. It's, it's, it is, it's good, but I think if he goes a step further, once you spend a bit more time with this, it's not, that, it's not just a break that you can't see. It's a break that you don't know is there because the part of you that would spot the break is the break. And so it's a bit, it yeah. gets a bit meta and a bit sort of tied up in itself, but that's actually part of the challenge. So if you've, you're, you're a young man, you know, 17, and you're struggling to get out of bed in the mornings. Um, when you do get out of bed, you're in a bad mood. Um, you've, and the only ex- way you've got to express this, this not feeling right is often due to socialization and due to the way people are brought up anger and violence and that turns you that goes in a certain direction it could, be, it could just be depressed it could be anxiety it could be depression which are expressed in all sorts of different ways but yeah. you, it's hard to know that it looks like something else it looks like a behavioural problem it looks like um, some kind of physiological thing sometimes but it's not and it's, it's really hard to see it must be a real challenge for you building products for want of a better mm-hmm. one of a better phrase given that Anybody can be affected by mental health mm-hmm. uh, yep. or, or poor mental health. And um, a lot of people are very good at masking it. So mm-hmm. it's not externally very easy to determine who is or isn't struggling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can be from, from any demographic, rich, rich and poor as well. So how do you build that tech product when it's difficult to know exactly who your customer really is? It's, um, it's as human-centered as human-centered design can get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have to really put the human at the heart of this and you have to think about this this unknown person that you can't reach, could be anyone, is anyone. Where do they want, standing where they are, where do they want to go? And, and as you mentioned before, they may not even, you know, for yeah. want of a better phrase, want to buy it. Yeah, yeah. They may not even know that this is a thing that they want to buy. Yeah. So I, I, I like to work from the jobs to, jobs to be done model. Mm-hmm. The, the job to be done is to feel better. And specifically the job to be done is to cope with depression to cope with mild to moderate anxiety, to cope with grief, challenges like this. You may not know, but that's, so we can build products that help you perform those jobs, to help you work through that challenge. The, the, our challenge from a design perspective is that you may not know that that's where, um, where you stand. Our advantage and what we've got going for us, thanks to um, being around for long enough that we're old enough to drink, um, is that we've been operating this service for a long time. We know a lot about mental well-being. We don't have to do some of the things that people are trying to do when they build mental model, mental wellness models. So this is something I've been obviously interested in for a long time. But a lot of people are trying to use natural language to spot signals for someone's mental well-being. Is this person depressed? And if you read the papers about how they've done it, how they've built this model, typically what they're doing is they're finding 
open public discussion forums that are open where, where the topic is depression. They'll then grab all of the posts in this depression forum and use those as their um, source of information about, as their source data. But what they're doing is they're assuming that everyone who's posted on these discussion forums is depressed at the time they post. And they're also assuming that they are talking in a way that they would talk if they were in another context. Like even though it's a public discussion forum, mm. they're assuming that the way they talk is... They're also assuming that they have been depressed and that they have... Not only are they depressed now, but they have actually been depressed. It's not that you know, this person could be depressed, they could have recovered from depression, or they could just be some random person who's just... You know, you've, got, you've got no real idea. You've also got no way of working out the severity of the depression from this. But they're using this and they're using sentiment analysis to say, ah, right, okay, well, they're using the word blue, therefore blue is correlated with this, which is just, that's that's cultural conditioning at best. We don't have to do any of that because having operated a service for a long time where people are talking about their depression, we, um, and also all the other mental mental, um, challenges, we can see how they talk and correlate that directly to how they were feeling. So we've got this ability to build things on that. So what this means is, given a person, we can talk to them a little bit and we can start to work out where they're pointed. And once you know where they're pointed, you can answer the question of, of all of the hundreds of clinically designed assessments to determine someone's well-being, which are the two or three that this person should probably do first? Right. And, though, and then from there, say, right, here is your job to do. Here is your tool. Here is your thing to do. And you don't really need to understand why or how. You just need to know. You just need to think about: is this making you feel better? And then keep you on this journey. You mentioned earlier that, that you've been bought locally by a number of different NHS trusts. Um, we talk to a lot of tech health tech startups, and partnering with the NHS and working with them is a challenge, especially when it's it's such a different structure from one trust to the next. What tips would you have as an organisation to anyone who's trying to add value to this space? That, that might help them in terms of working within that, that environment? So if I was talking to other tech startups in the UK, I would say keep at it because it is important to remember that the NHS is extremely well regarded internationally. Right. So you're selling to the NHS here. As it, it may feel tough, but um, you will get a lot from it. It's very, very much worth it. Now, the NHS is um, budget constrained more than anything else. They do have a very holistic view, though. So their goals are around improving the quality of life of the people they're responsible for, and therefore, and then they set up set up measures around that. Be fully aware of those measures. Understand how the people who are buying your service are measured, because you you're being bought by someone several rungs down. It's it is a it's a centralized but devolved organization. So someone who is responsible in our case for mental health in Derbyshire is uh, for your children and young people is being assessed and they have things they need to report on because they're being allocated a budget they're going to spend that budget and people are checking to make sure they're spending the budget in a way that is helping now um, yeah and the NHS has initiatives around many many different things and some of these things are easy to measure you know you can have an initiative around um, certain diseases vaccination rates those things are reasonably easy to measure you can measure the outcomes have vaccination rates increased yes brilliant you've spent your money well of course it's very difficult to do that in a um, randomized clinically 
clinical trial style way because there could be all sorts of reasons that our vaccination rates to have increased. Yeah. And when you when it comes to delivering mental well-being, because the timescales are very long and we talked a bit about the stigma and the difficulty in self-assessing and assessing externally, it's very even harder to do that. So the NHS has primarily fallen back on access targets. Assuming that, um, which is which I can see is kind of reasonable. Basically, their idea is only commission high quality services, so care services that actually deliver high quality care, and then make sure that people have access to them. Hmm. And then make sure that the demographics of people who are who historically have more challenges than others, uh, LGBTQIA+, uh, BAME, different groups like that, who have historically, unfortunately, have higher uh, prevalence of mental health difficulties. If they have increased access to a high quality service, then all right, that's probably helping. It's an approximation. The NHS is well aware it's an approximation. They are on your side, but give them the data so that they can be on your as on your side as you as you want them to be. And then beyond there, what you see, what we see is the NHS actually becomes our best sales force. They become fans. They become strong advocates of what of what you do. They certainly become strong advocates of what we do, and our efforts flow from one group to another. Mm. Someone sees someone sees what we do for Derbyshire, Lancashire wanted uh, Derbyshire and Lancashire near each other ish. ish. My UK geography is terrible. <laughs> Reasonably so. North, Norfolk see Norfolk sees what Suffolk have and they want some of that. So look, um, Zenzone, you mentioned have just turned eighteen. You're, yeah. you're old enough to vote. So what's next? What's next for the business? So as I mentioned, we've we see this gap between a Panadol meditation and surgery talking therapy and we want to fill that gap right and we, we, so we want to build many many new products new things new ways for people to go on a lifetime journey towards mental well-being it's an, a, a journey that accepts this is not a thing you cure you don't cure mental health you work on it you, and so we want to build tools that help people understand and work on their mental well-being. Are you looking for people to help you build them? We are looking for many, many people. We, we think we have a few things that are really interesting. Specifically what we're after are people with a deep interest in, use, in AI, natural language. Right. Those sorts of really hot technology right now. And I mean, there's a lot of places you can go and get all, um, work on some really interesting products and projects around London at the moment. So if someone's listening and they think this sounds interesting, careers page? Yes, please. And what I would say is far better to help the world on, ment- on their mental well-being rather than accidentally manipulating <laughs> elections. Um, <laughs> Zenzone.com slash careers. Um, I'll make sure that website works. <laughs> Giles, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. I thought it would be an interesting place to start with um, this idea that you you might go to Zenzone. Yeah. So hang on. Let's rephrase this. When you are buying a product, say a mm. pair of shoes, you know that you want to buy a pair of shoes. When you are seeking yep. for help for mental health issues, you don't necessarily know that you need help for mental health health issues. And that might seem blindingly obvious once it's pointed out to you, but I'd never really considered that that's a very different dynamic, actually. Do you know what else I found blindingly obvious, but only realised that when Alexander, when Giles Alexander says it, is about um, people going onto forums and things like that. And, you know, I do this now, not, not, not with regards to mental health as such, but if I, if I have a problem, I'll look in the comments section of somewhere rather than the article itself because I feel that's real-time, real-user data. You know, that's honest and things like that. But 
course it's fucking not honest. Of course it's not. Like, who knows what state of the, you know, minds, the people are in who are commenting and things like that. It's, yeah, it was, do you know what? It was really eye-opening, um, uh, Giles' interview there. Yeah, and look, I mean, that, that like, whilst you're mentioning it, you know, that forum piece, that, that's a really good cautionary tale about bias. Yeah, because yeah. We all know bias in, bias out when it comes to data and when it comes to AI. Everyone's familiar mm-hmm. with that. This idea that a mental wellness model could be built for use with natural language processing um, based on a, on a public forum where the assumption is that everyone is depressed or yeah. that you have been depressed and then using sentiment analysis by looking at the word blue and linking that yeah. to depression. Whilst you might not be looking to build the the Nazi chatbot that the accidentally was unleashed on, <laughs> on Reddit and whatnot, you can very quickly see how you could get a skewed piece of, of, of tech that doesn't actually do what you need it to do by not being careful and not thinking about the sources of data that you're using. I mean, this might be in bad taste, but the only time you should ever read or hear the word blue in, in, in such a negative context should be in that atrocious song, I'm green, if I was blue, I would die. You know, that's, that's, that's where it's come from. But just, just to touch on the blue, on, on that word, you know, I kind of, I'm not disagreeing with Giles at all here, but for me, blue comes from the blues, right? Which essentially was uh, sort of, you know, the first kind of pop music we ever had, the blues, right? And that was all about singing about, well, being depressed, being, having the blues, experience heartache and stuff like that. So I wouldn't rule out the word blue entirely. No, no, but, but, but what Giles but, is saying hang on, hang on. is, it, yeah. Yeah, let, let's be clear. What, what he's yeah, suggesting yeah. is just because you use the word blue does yes, not denote yes. that you are depressed. No, Absolutely. no, there is, there is There is correlation and, and, and connotations in that word. Yeah. But it is wrong to assume that because someone uses the word blue, they are depressed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Um, but I mean, it's, it's a funny one because it, Giles uh, talks about stigma and things like that and stuff. And I mean, again, I, don't, I do not want to sound like I'm disagreeing with him because I'm not at all. But I was lucky enough that my father and my mother, you know, I, I'm from a, I was going to say broken home then. And that would just sound too awful. I'm not from a broken home. My parents split up when I was one and a half years old. So I've never known any difference. But I was lucky enough that both of my parents allowed me to cry. They facilitated me to be an emotional child when, when I wanted to be, when I was upset, when I was distressed. You know, my dad is very much a sensitive, cool dude. But he is also a bricklayer that was brought up in the 70s where, you know, you can't express your feelings. So I want to just take this time to give massive props to my dad for being so, to enable me to be the, you know, snowflakey millennial that I am today. Unfortunately, that would appear to be rare. And yeah, 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 totally. I see it across all of my friends, Dave. Um, no one really in my group of say 10 to 15 boyfriends um, is comfortable crying. None of them will say, oh, I watched that last night, I cried. Or none of them will be like, oh, do you know what? I'm feeling a bit down in the dumps at the moment. The one friend that does openly admit his depression and things like that is the one friend that goes and sees a counsellor once a month. And guess what? That one friend has got the best job. He's the happiest there is, he's ever been and, and so on and so forth. I've told you before that I cry every time I watch Father of the Bride Part 2, right? Yep, yep, yep. Which Just, is a, you know, that's yeah. a slightly uh, left field choice. I, last time I cried, 
Tuesday night, uh, um, I watched the new Ricky Gervais series on Netflix called Afterlife. And there was a bit in that, I won't say what it is because it, well, it's not a spoiler, but uh, people can watch it for themselves. There's a bit in that that I, like, literally, Dave, I was <laughs> crying like that at it, which is mental, but it's fine. Everyone's of course it is. We are, we, are, we are kind of conditioned to suppress emotion. Just, I was just reflecting on the fact there that you said about crying at Ricky Gervais, and I was shaking yeah. my head and went, dear me. Yeah. Absolute habit and yeah. absolute habit and nothing <laughs> to do with the fact that it's a bad thing. But you just told me you cried at the bride program. Which I just fell into. So it just this, goes to show what we're talking about. It, it just typifies, you know, as, uh, as young men, which you and I are, you know, it is all about upbringing and, and your relationship with your parents. But it's, it's also so not about that. Like you say, Dave, you're one of the kindest, most understanding people I've ever met. Aww. But you're, you're, well, it, that's true. But the knee-jerk reaction to me telling you that I cried at Richard Gervais' programme is to be like, oh, God, Jack, sort it out. That's just the society. That's not your, that's, I know if I rung you up crying, you'd be like, oh, Jack, come on, let's talk about this. But that's just the knee-jerk reaction we have in today's yeah, society. Yeah. I, I also find, find it fascinating, this idea that... Um, there's a lot of shame, shame-based mm. uh, around talking to adults. Adults are authoritarian, uh, authority figures rather, and that just mm-hmm. reinforces shame. So mm-hmm. they offer video chat to adults, but not to young people and children. I found yeah. that, I, again, maybe quite obvious once you've had that explained to you, but beforehand I would have never thought that, right? I mean, I guess it's kind of like up until you leave school or you leave education, Every adult in your life tells you what to do every fucking day, you know, and every teacher at school, you know, there, there's anomalies. Teachers are lovely. And by and large, all of my teachers are lovely, but they can't help you with your personal life all the time. They've got their own lives, you know. And again, at home, your parents uh, sit down, have your dinner, brush your teeth, go to bed. You know, not everyone's lucky enough to have a one parent. So it's... This whole like piece around shame and things like that, I I can't agree with it more because I know I know that that's true. We we know that that's true. Mm, yeah. Uh, last point. I love this 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 analogy that uh, you know if if mental health was to be kind of viewed through the prism of of, of regular health of physical health, I don't know how best to yep. describe that. You'd either have Panadol or surgery, and there's no yeah. middle ground. And the whole point that <laughs> Zenzone are trying to, to kind of, what they're trying to do, their mission is to expand that range of choice that's available to people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, to, to wrestle it back to their platform a bit. I mean, it seems as though you can go on there and like you say, you can, you can jack someone via a bot um, or you can just get into you know, articles, discussions and, and forums and stuff like that. And I think it's a great idea. And do you know what this kind of reminded me of, Dave? It almost reminded me a little bit of, well, any of the sort of crowdsourcing people we've had, but a little bit Olio. It felt like it was a social mission. It's almost as if, you know, you can take the, the brand out of it and it could run on its own sort of thing. And I think that's an amazing thing, if I'm making any sense there. Absolutely. Well, look, Jars, we can only thank you enough for coming on the, on the show and, and talking mm-hmm. about it. There is a lot of stigma and obviously a lot of shame around mental health that there shouldn't yeah. be. People should be encouraged to talk about it. 
men in particular should be encouraged to explore their emotions and if this normalizes it just a little bit for a fraction of people and that helps then great because more people should go find out what Zenzone are doing and and explore that platform. Mm. just just one more thing I, I can't remember who put the advert out and it was almost like trying too hard to get men mentally uh, men men's awareness levels up around mental health and it was that whole boxing advert do you remember it about a year ago dave no. and it was almost almost like so it was like oh your mate's in trouble you wouldn't you, you wouldn't let him get beaten up but you're letting him get him beaten up internally sort of thing and whilst like the sentiment was right uh, I, I felt condescending so i think as a society we need to do we need to do a whole lot more and you know step one being if you're feeling you know depressed or anxious as a young person go visit Zenzone. yeah but maybe maybe there is that kind of maybe it needs to be step by step putting it in language that people at least can can relate to yeah yeah I don't know. yeah I, yeah no i, 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 I get I, I, right. I get your point i get your point but maybe it's kind of a uh an education uh journey that you know you can't go from a to z yeah no i i i, I totally agree with that it's just yeah, I think whoever directed that particular advert might have, mm. might have missed the beat a little bit. But hey, sure. they're trying. They're trying. Right, we'll go to our advert break. When we come back, uh, we will give you a quick recap of Big Data World. Farewell, but not goodbye. Do you know what that is? No. Bobby Robson's autobiography. All the better read by Bobby Robson. No way. Yeah. What a legend of the game he was. Exactly. It's a great book to read, but listening to Bobby Robson talking you through his life, that's special. Exactly. My choice is uh, The Sisters Brothers, which is a film starring Jake Gyllenhaal and John C. Riley that has been released worldwide apart from in the UK. So I'm going to listen to the audiobook. If anyone's wondering why we've suddenly started talking about books, it's because if you head over to audible.co.uk forward slash tech talks, you can get a free month's trial there, courtesy of your favourite technology podcast. Get listening. Welcome back to the pod. Jack, no me or you going first. <laughs> no wrestling over that this week. No, um, it's the day after Big Data World. Before we do play what our off the hoof comments were last night, any kind of further thoughts on it this morning? Um, I, it was just, it, it, it was a gargantuan event. It was huge. Um, lots and lots of amazing stuff going on with regards to data, DevOps, CyberSec and things like that. was lucky enough to meet a load of good people. So, I mean, just from my point of view, if you get the chance, head over to the Instagram page or the Tech Talks Twitter page because Ryder and I were running around like headless chickens trying to interview people yesterday. So do go and watch our videos. Uh, two things to bear in mind here, folks. Myself and Jack are talking. So is one of uh, our colleagues, Jack Nelson, who is an employee of Harvey Nash. So there, there's that bit of info for you if you're wondering who Jack is, the, the second Jack in the show. Uh, and also, yes, that is a plane flying overhead. We were recording outside a pub on uh, by, in the flight path, it appears, of City Airport. So sorry about that. It's towards the end. But it's only fleeting. Yeah, I'm just more worried about the chemtrails it emitted that uh, the government are using to control our minds. We were right under that flight path, Dave. <laughs> That's that classic conspiracy story, isn't it? That one. Oh, God. So, Jack. Hello, David. We're sitting here having a nice cold Amstel. Mm, mine's flat. Is it? Yeah, a little bit. It looks quite fizzy to me. Yeah, no, it's a little bit flat. But this could get confusing because we've got another Jack. 
Yes. Hi. Jack Nelson. <laughs> Jack Nelson. Jack Pearson, Jack Nelson. This this could be confusing. New to the fold. We have just finished day two of Big Data World 2019 here at the Excel. Yep. Enjoyable? Yeah, really enjoyable. You hosted a, a nice panel there, Jack. My, my first panel, yeah. What was, um, what was the topic again? Uh, it was data integration and management, big data specifically, and the uh, skills gap. It didn't really look like your first panel. No, it Thank didn't. You. I just want to say, as an audience member, it looked as though Jack had done this before and he did it with a plum and confidence. And I only envy that because I can't do anything with a plum or confidence very well. <laughs> the listeners are aware. Yes, yes, yes. So what what did we take away from today? Um, but no, I learned some good things about oh, from Jack's Jack's panel discussion actually about when you're hiring data scientists. Something really important is if they keep asking if a candidate, yeah, sure, you want them to be STEM skilled and stuff like that, but they keep asking why, right? So why are they doing that? Why do we need this for that? Why is my customer doing X, Y, and Z after each other in that order? And I just think like. That's so such a simple way to solve a talent shortage. And I mean, look, it might not be totally inclusive of getting the best people in, but if they're asking why, it's yep. a start for a data scientist. I've I've learned a new phrase today. Data lake. Right? I really went, since when did we take stuff out of warehouses and put them in lakes? I know. I never yeah. heard. I never heard of a data lake in my life. Yeah. And then I heard three different people talk about data mm. lakes. Mm. And then I, heard, then I was I was I was asked you know how data lakes are going to be affected by GDPR and I said well I didn't even know that we existed so you know I mean the only problem with having data lakes lakes can can lakes lead to waterfalls aka <laughs> are, is it easier to penetrate a lake than it is a warehouse I feel as though it is I feel as though we need a better term than lake a lake just is anyone could go into a lake right right so that says to me that anyone could go into this data lake which obviously isn't true Maybe organisations have had to build dams across data rivers to create a data lake. Data Watergate. There we go. There you go. Uh, no, but I find it, I find it really interesting because they're talking about data uh, existing in its natural form, which I kind of... I don't quite get that because I thought the whole point was we want structured data and too much data was unstructured, so why do we want it in its natural form? Maybe this is something that listeners can explain to me, but yeah. I found that just truly fascinating and different. Um, I also... On the GDPR front, yep. I was more interested in GDPR than I've ever been today. Yep. There, was, there was a talk by DMA, their CEO, Chris, uh, right at the end of the day on the Big Data World keynote uh, stage. And he talked about why GDPR was more keenly accepted in Eastern Europe. Yep. And of course, it's because they existed under police states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you think about Eastern Europe... There was Soviet rule and there was a police state. So therefore, obviously, transparency around data and, and privacy and regulating that is going, to be, is going to be accepted. But do you know what is really interesting to see as well? That some companies, uh, like The Guardian, we saw a visual case study from The Guardian, use GDPR as an opportunity to gain more trust and you know, basically make their customers feel more engaged and warmer. They did a whole campaign around you can trust us, blah, 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 blah. But they, you know, they did it ethically. And I feel as though someone like The Guardian is benefiting from GDPR now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jack, Jack Nelson, anything that you in particular stood out walking around? 
Um, I, a lot of my friends work in the tech industry that I didn't realise before. So <laughs> <laughs> bit of a, a bit of a meet-up. Yeah, it uh, turned out to be a bit of one, yeah. I was uh, walking around, stumbling into a couple of friends who work in um, some data security firms, um, and I sort of had a nice long chat with about to uh, slid in the hiring process as well. <laughs> nice. Uh, typical recruiter, but... Uh, <laughs> No, it was um, it was fascinating all round. Uh, I spoke to a couple of people at um, Gamma uh, who were sort of helping with digital transformation, and they go in and consult firms on that. And that, that um, was, I mean, for me, quite eye-opening. Yeah. Uh, oh, good day all round. It just goes to show how small the tech community really is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, we saw, we saw Katie Mills today. Yeah. Uh, from State Zero Labs. Probably speaking on the blockchain stage. She definitely was speaking on the blockchain stage. Uh, we saw Sumo, who have been on the show. Sumo, we're here. And we've Dark met Trace. Dark Trace. And we've met people that could be coming on the show soon. Yeah, absolutely. Hang on, there goes a plane. Uh, we should tell listeners we're recording right next to City Airport then. We've hired out an incredibly expensive studio. Um, I've also thought, I thought it was interesting that uh, there was there was a bit of a chat around how data and customer experience can be used to entice uh, people back onto the high street and retail, which yeah. is something we've touched on 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 the podcast recently, and also about creating experiences for customers using data. So, harking back to Stu and uh, and oh. Flo and Way at uh, uh, Koala as well. So, I thought that was all very interesting. Um, but no, it's it's been it's been fascinating. Great turnout. Yeah. Some very very busy stages. Yeah. Two days well spent out the office. Yeah, yeah, it's been good. It's been good. It's uh, we love coming to stuff like this because we love meeting new people. Yeah. yeah. So Haley Green, thank you very much for asking us to come along, host a couple of uh, sessions, host one of the stages, come and talk to some people, um, and yeah, on rolls the uh, the show to the next to the next conference in April. Yeah, AI Expo. AI Expo, and then you know, in a year's time, the Tech Talks Conference. <laughs> Spoilers. No, spo- yeah, yeah, shit. <laughs> well, I think I think with that little bit of a report under our belt, we should probably uh, bid farewell to our listeners uh, until. Uh, whoa, what show are we now talking about? It's going to be Monday's show, isn't it? It is indeed. It is indeed, and yeah. Sorry, listeners, if uh, you're getting the show a little bit late today, um, it's all Dave's fault. So yeah, thanks, mate. Are you around <laughs> tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, I'm in all day. Oh, we can we can record in person. How lovely. Definitely, uh, yeah, hundred percent. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll be back with you next week. Cheerio, bye.